Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. Well, on Friday, I made the mistake of reading the book of Malachi in preparation for this sermon. Don't be impressed. Isaiah clocks in at 65 chapters. Malachi has only four, and they're short ones. But man, this guy sure knows how to pack a lot of prophetic retribution into very few verses. I'm imagining a younger Malachi sitting in freshman composition class for prophecy majors as the professor slaps the first draft of a term paper back onto his desk and snarls, twice as much divine outrage, half as long. (laughs) Malachi got the message. Wasting no time at all on pleasantries, he comes on strong in chapter one, railing at the priests. Actually, let me adjust that. The first thing you learn in Prophecy Comp 101 is how to use the divine first person. That is, you learn how to write in the voice of God. So God is the one railing at the priests in the book as Malachi begins, saying they've polluted God's altars, despised God's name by sacrificing livestock that is blind or lame or otherwise blemished by the ritual standards of the day. Try presenting that to your governor, says a very indignant God. Do you think he'd stand for these second-rate rams and bullocks? I want your best And if you won't listen to me, I'll not only curse you, I'll curse your blessings, rebuke your offspring, and spread the dung of your worthless offerings on your faces. Look it up. It's in the Bible. (laughs) Scholars tell us some parts of Holy Scripture are eschatological in nature. They don't dwell so much on the scatological parts, but there you got it. (laughs) So what in the world are we to do with a book and a scene like this one? Could it offer anything helpful at all to our conception of God? Especially when there are dozens of places in the Hebrew Scriptures that directly contradict it. Passages where God says just as clearly, I don't care about your offerings. Do you think I need the blood of these bulls to survive? I just want you to live lives of justice and mercy and loving kindness. So what gives? Which God is the real God? We probably need to know, especially if this God is going to send a messenger who will be like a refiner's fire to burn away all that is impure in our lives. See why no one's written a song about Advent being the most wonderful time of the year. At the heart of Malachi's complaint is covenant faithfulness, or rather covenant unfaithfulness on the part of the Hebrew clergy in particular. And we can't really enter the world of Malachi or the world of John the Baptist and Zechariah and Elizabeth and Jesus, for that matter, without appreciating a little about what covenant faithfulness was about. The central Hebrew covenant, of course, took the form of the law handed down to Moses on Sinai. But there were others, earlier ones even, like that covenant God made with Noah and all the creatures of the earth. After the flood, when God laid down God's bow, God's weapon in the sky as a sign of a promise never to do such a terrible thing again. It's possible that our conception of a covenantal relationship is one of conditional love or conditional commitment. You keep your side of the bargain and I'll keep up mine. 
But that's not the essence of biblical covenant living. In fact, it's just the opposite. As Ellen Davis puts it, whom you really do need to come here preach at next year's Lenten preaching series. He's splendid. Ellen Davis put it this way. Covenant relationship is based on love that transcends self-interest on either side. At least, covenant is based on God's offering of such love and a desire for reciprocal response from us and also on human aspiration to love God thus, even if that aspiration is unstable. She said, for instance, over in the book of Job, it's the Satan, the accuser, who tries to prove that there's no such thing in this world as selfless love. He's the one who claims Job only loves God for what Job can get from God. The covenantal life isn't based on transactional love, which isn't love at all, of course. The covenant was that God and Israel would love not for their own sakes, not for what they could get from one another, but that they they would love purely for the sake of the beloved. God loving Israel for the sake of Israel, and Israel to the extent that they could, loving God just for the sake of God. Everything in the covenant only mattered insofar as it made a space for that kind of non-transactional love to be possible. So when we come upon a prophet like Malachi, who's ranting about a broken covenant, a a prophet who frankly starts using the vocabulary of the Captain Underpants books our son used to love when he was nine, consider this possibility. If you walk into a room where someone's throwing dishes and cursing a blue streak, it may not be because two people involved in that spat hate each other. It may be because their love opened them up to the deepest kind of hurt when love's betrayed. A few weeks ago, Ardell and I decided we needed a feel-good movie and watched Moonstruck for the first time in decades, I think. You remember that movie? It's a love story. It came out in 1987. Cher and Nicolas Cage as Loretta and Ronnie are indescribably brilliant. And since it's a story about Italian New Yorkers, These characters express their love for one another mostly by storming out of rooms, slamming doors, and yelling at the top of their lungs, that kind of thing. Like I said, heartwarming is what we were after. (laughs) The patriarch of Loretta's family is Cosmo Castorini, a plumbing mogul who has more money than he knows what to do with. We see him out on the town with his mistress, buying her jewelry and gowns, taking her to the opera. Olympia Dukakis plays his wife, Rose, She knows about it all. One morning, she and Cosmo and Loretta and Ronnie are all in the kitchen eating breakfast, along with Rose's father, who spends most of the movie tangled up in the pack of unruly dogs he has to walk each day. And in a house where ordinary conversation is shouted, sometimes I think it's the calm voice that gets everyone's attention. So Rose sits down, pushes her empty plate aside, and asks Cosmo quietly, have I been a good wife? Yeah, he shrugs. I want you to stop seeing her, she says. Cosmo lays down his spoon, rises from his chair, slams his hand on the table one time, sits back down, and says, okay. And go to confession, Rose says. 
Cosmo shakes his head and says, a man understands one day that his life is built on nothing. And that's a bad, crazy day. Your life, says Rose, and now her perfect calm's breaking a little as she tamps down all those years of rage and hurt. Your life is not built on nothing. Ti amo, she says, in the Italian of their youth. I love you. Anch'io ti amo, says Cosmo. I love you too. And he actually blows her a believable kiss. Now there was a broken marriage covenant involved in Rose's confrontation with her husband. But the covenant was not what stirred her rage or her courage. Love did. More specifically, a love for the cosmos she'd lost touch with. And maybe even more importantly, a love for the Cosmo who'd lost touch with himself, who understood one bad, crazy day that he'd been building a life on nothing, because he'd been building it on wealth he could extract from other people, on a mistress who loved him only for the diamonds he could buy her, whom he loved only for the way she looked on his arm. Rose wasn't calling Cosmo out so much as she was calling Cosmo back to himself the self beneath all the bravado and betrayals that somehow, in spite of everything, she still loved. The self that somehow, in spite of everything, still loved her. And I wonder, could this be some small human reflection of what the raging Advent love of Malachi is really all about? Not the love of a petty God who's offended by the blemishes in our offerings or the technical violation of a covenant, but a God who loves us too truthfully to pretend things are any other than what they are. In the face of some truths, you see, to be anything less than enraged is evidence that love is absent, because true love can't not care. So maybe the God of Advent is a God who loves us too deeply to be anything but angry and hurt when we build our lives on nothing. A God who grieves when we turn from the offer of God's selfless love and build these false selves for the sake of a world that says to us, sure, I'll love you if it's in my interest to do so. Knock yourself out, proving you're worth my attention. Maybe Malachi rages like a jilted lover because God won't let us settle for lives built on such fickle, conditional loves instead of the one great love that will never let us go. Friends, maybe we still need the strange, culturally tone-deaf season of Advent to remind us that love doesn't always look like a wish-granting Santa or even like gentle Jesus, meek and mild, wrapped in those swaddling cloths. Sometimes love looks, comes to us like a wife who's been cheated on or an angry prophet, confronting us with the, untruth, the uncomfortable truth about our lives. Sometimes love is like the fuller's soap, the refiner's fire, which is not, by the way, the annihilating fire of hell. It is the cleansing fire that burns away only the falseness and unfaithfulness until all that's left of us is the silver at your true and beloved core. 
Because that's the self that divine love has made. The self that God misses, aches for, adores. The self God can't stand to be separated from by the nothings we give, to our, we give our lives to. And we'll burn all those false loves and all of those false selves entirely up if that's what it takes to reach us. So we can finally hear, or maybe so we can remember, a long-forgotten divine Tiamo, and be saved. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org slash podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.